Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Hi, Kevin. Uh, This was your first uh, uh, wrap-up to 30 minutes and just checking on how you are holding up with the hamstring. Feel great. That, of course, was the Nets' indispensable Kevin Durant right after the Nets beat Charlotte last week. And you all know what happened next. Sorry about that, folks. Take it, shoot that, shoot that. He's going in the middle. Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and Radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game Podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, remember last week when I told you all, don't worry about individual losses, all that matters is that the Nets get their stars healthy? Well, we're all now wondering if that's ever going to happen. In addition to Durant getting knocked out of Sunday's game with a thigh bruise and hasn't played since... James Harden suffered a setback on Monday just as he was getting set to return to action following a hamstring strain. Now he's out indefinitely. So, yeah, you know, maybe it's okay to start worrying. On this show, we'll talk about the wacky week that was in Netsville, you know, which started minutes after I last posted, you know, when LaMarcus Aldridge announced his retirement due to heart issues. Uh, sorry, no special guest this week. Tough with a midweek back-to-back on the road. But, you know, I've got my usual supply of clips. And it also means it's a great time to delve into your Twitter questions in a new listener mailbag segment. So I'll do my best to try to keep calm and rationalize all this. And you'll hopefully you'll find it to be a good listen. And if you feel like it was... Once again, ask that you please subscribe to this podcast on the new WFAN platform called Odyssey. And we're also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, among others. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you know, please feel free to also send me some comments in the review section. So, you know, the Nets have been on a strict win-one-lose-one streak over the last two weeks. You know, most recently splitting a road back-to-back by beating the defensively horrific Pelicans on Tuesday before falling to the Raptors last night. I mean, on one hand, I was kind of hoping that last one would have been a blowout so Coach Steve Nash wouldn't feel the need to chase the game. But, you know, Toronto's bench is trash and the Nets showed just enough fight with pretty much an eight-man rotation to keep in the game until the last two minutes. Still, you know, when your best player on a given night is Bruce Brown, 
it's kind of hard to climb all the way uphill. Don't get me wrong, Brown was phenomenal. 21 points, 14 boards, hustle plays all over the court. But, you know, the Nets' top weapons just didn't have the legs to make enough shots. Kyrie Irving, 10 for 21. Landry Shamit, 3 for 17. Joe Harris was 4 for 4 from 3 in the first quarter. He got off exactly one more three-point attempt thereafter. More importantly, the Raptors' big guns found their own legs late in the second quarter, and they were unconscious from deep. 6 for 10 in the second quarter, 7 for 13 in the third quarter. Many of them were uncontested. I asked Harris about that after the game, and here was his response. Uh, When you're talking about uh, the tired legs, would it also be fair to say that the open threes that they were getting, particularly in the corners, that was more could chalk that up to the to the legs rather than mental breakdowns? Uh, no, I think it's mental breakdowns probably more than anything else. You know, you should still be able to close out regardless of how your body is feeling. But I think, you know, uh, I mean, you know, fatigue uh, affects your, your effort, obviously. And, uh, you know, those are just really effort plays, you know, being able to lock in, mentally focus, um, you know, making the right rotations. And, uh you know, especially there late, late in the game, you know, that's when you have to be really locked in, try not to make a lot of mistakes. Um, and uh, we gave them too many open look opportunities, uh, too many chances to get 50-50 balls. You know, a lot of the, sort of the effort plays um, where, um, you know, we weren't able to uh, make up ground that way. That was Nets sharpshooter Joe Harris, who's currently listed second on the NBA three-point percentage leaderboard at 48.2% behind Joe Ingles of Utah. Crazy. Joe shot over 50% from three in a week that included a rough two-for-nine outing in Brooklyn's heartbreaking loss in Miami on Sunday. He was brilliant in the game before, blowout victory over the shorthanded Hornets. I caught up with Shamit after that one, and here's what he had to say about his teammate. Hey, Landry, uh, you guys pulled away in the fourth quarter last night. Uh, Joe had 10 points in a row. Uh, if you can recall, what stood out to you, you know, as most impressive? About Joe? Yeah. Oh, just uh, he didn't have any sort of conscience. He was just shooting. Um, and, you know, that's that's the best Joe. You know, he's just out there getting looks up. Um You know, we joke about how many jacks we're going to get in the game. That's our word for it. And, uh, you know, when he's hunting them and and getting them up like that, it's always fun to see. It bodes well for our offense, uh, makes everybody else's life easier when he's even just getting them up. So, uh, you know, we love to see that from Joe. So interesting. I guess Shamit and Harris have this inside chat about how many jacks they'll get up that night. You know, as Chabot was getting his own numbers up this week, you know, I saw some Twitter stuff about finding a nickname for the duo, you know, like with the Splash Brothers in Golden State. I don't know, maybe someone more creative than me can coin something up using the two jacks or something, maybe pair of jacks. You know, you guys figure that out. Anyway, you know, the big picture takeaway for me has been the overall development of Chabot as a playmaker. And with every point guard outside of Kyrie Irving on the shelf, Nash has basically told Shamit to run the second unit offense. And really, you know, it hasn't been terrible. Remember, this is a guy who's never averaged over 2.3 assists per game. 
And he dished out 15 of them over his last three games. Pretty much all of them with KD and Harden out. You know, because Durant played just four minutes before getting hit in the thigh in Miami. Obviously, you know, when all the stars return, Shamit's role will go back to being more of a finisher. But even there, you know, he's been improving his versatility. I know New Orleans is a hot mess defensively. But, you know, Shamit had, like, what, three driving layups down the lane on him the other night? And that was a big step for Harris, too. You know, countering teams that ran him off the three-point line and working on a variety of finishes around the rim. Shamit isn't quite there yet, but I'm not going to write him off. And the other positive development from the week that I observed is how Blake Griffin is slowly integrating himself into what this team does. And I talked about this last week, you know, how he could be the team's glue guy. Already, you know, he might be the team's best screen setter, charge taker, and no one gets down on the floor like this guy to not just battle, but win these 50-50 balls. Here's Harris on what Griffin has brought to the team since he came over in the buyout. Hi, Joe. A lot of people are going to remember Blake's lob dunk from tonight, but can you describe some of the smaller details that helped you guys pull away in the fourth quarter? Yeah, Blake, uh, you know, I think about the charge that he took, some of the defensive plays that he was making, you know, just doing all the little stuff, being in the right position. And then offensively, you know, he's kind of one of those guys that we can play through um, where uh, whether he's in the post or, you know, playing sort of that trail big position, you know, a lot of stuff can be run through him just because, you know, he is a very dynamic offensive player. You know, he can step out and shoot, but he can also handle it and pass the ball really well um, and, uh, you know, just makes it difficult for teams to guard when, you know, you surround him with shooters and then you have Claxton in there playing the dunker spot um, where Blake is sort of, you know, in more of a facilitator type mode. So, yeah, now, in addition to the dirty work, Griffin, you know, he was all NBA just two seasons ago. Yeah, injuries have cut back on his athleticism, but, you know, he just knows how to play. I know, you know, his post-up efficiency has been brutal as a net. Just 0.67 points per possession going into last night's game, according to NBA.com. But, you know, his shooting percentage in the restricted area isn't that far off from where he was when he was dominating in Detroit. Maybe three percentage points different. And while Griffin sometimes gets beat off the dribble, you know, he's proven himself to be pretty capable on that end as well. Seems to know when and where to rotate, boxes out. And like I noted before, he's taken eight charges in 13 games. Believe it or not, that's the most on the team. With Shamit having the next closest at five charges drawn in 48 games. I know you guys have heard me rant about this stuff over the last few years, but to me, his six foot nine, 250-pound frame, that's just what the doctor ordered for this team especially when you consider who the Nets will have to beat to get a ring. Now, Griffin was held out of the last meeting between the Nets and the Sixers. You know, that's back-to-back rule, which I guess had an out when a team was down to nine guys. But anyway, the Nets are going to need Blake to face a Sixers team that features a front line of Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Tobias Harris. And I asked Griffin about the prospect of facing the Sixers down the line. And here's the clip. 
Hey, Blake, unfortunately you didn't get the opportunity to play against Philadelphia, but, you know, a lot of fans are looking forward to a potential uh, matchup down the road. What mental notes did you take from uh, viewing that game? Well, I, I can't share the mental notes, um, but, you know, it's always good to see, sort of get a good look, an up-close look. Um, you know, they're a good team, um, a lot of talented players. They play hard, well-coached, so... Um, you know, we, we, we have to be right, but, um, you know, I, I would say we're up for the challenge. Oh, well, I tried. I guess uh, no one wants to give up the secret sauce. Anyway, that again was Blake Griffin. And when I was talking about getting the most out of him, that only works if the Nets play him. And here's where I kind of turn the page from positive to negative. Because that Miami loss, there was no excuse for that. Just a stupid loss, in my opinion. Nets played down the stretch with Jeff Green at the five with four guards. Now, I don't know how many times I have to say this, but that's always a disaster waiting to happen. You know, I ran the numbers afterwards. When Green was paired with either Griffin or Nick Claxton, the Nets outscored the Heat 36-32 to over 16 minutes. And in the six minutes with Green as the sole big... Brooklyn was bludgeoned 14-2. to Would Claxton or Griffin have gotten a better contest on Bam Adebayo's buzzer beater? I can't say for sure. It wasn't that easy of a look. That guy makes those mid-rangers all the time. However, that lineup with Green the sole big, that lineup typically leaves Brooklyn so susceptible on defense. Because you know, with two bigs on the floor... If one switches out on a ball handler, the other can scram switch out of a bad matchup underneath. Can't do that with just Green on the court. Shamit, Irving, Brown, you're on your own. Makes it tough. Of course, remember way back when? Oh, wait, that was just last week. Yeah, remember we were talking about the Nets' glut of big men? Yeah, that ship has sailed. I mean, really tough break for Aldridge, but, you know, what can you do? Guys' health and family have to come first. And now Claxton is stuck in the COVID-19 protocols. We have no idea how that happened. I mean, I remember seeing reports that he contracted the coronavirus last summer before the bubble. But, you know, like with Durant, I guess that doesn't matter. Which made me wonder about whether getting vaccinated changes anything. I mean, you'd think the league would incentivize people who got their shots by relaxing protocols. But, you know, this stuff about who has gotten it, I guess, has to stay secret. You know, HIPAA rules. So, you know, I thought I'd ask Nash about what he knew on the subject. And, of course, it turns out not much. But here's the clip anyway. Hi, Steve. Uh, What is the latest as to the traveling parties, vaccinations, and have you received clarity from the league based on the new health ga- guidelines about whether certain protocols can be relaxed? You know, I think there is there is a bunch of things that are, are relaxed if you've been vaccinated. I'm not as abreast of them as I probably should be. And in, and in some ways, you know, the, the protocols have changed, not just if you get a vaccination, but coming out of all-star break, they heighten things. The certain stretches in the first half, they heighten things. So 
um, heightened and relaxed. I kind of just try to stick to, you know, what I, you know, the, the bare minimums and, and keep it there and not try to think too much about what extra stuff I can do now or not do just because, uh, you know, you're, it's, it's such a routine. I just trying to stick with it and keep moving and trying to help this team, uh, reach its best level. So this hasn't been Nash's greatest week. So, you know, I guess he's owed some leeway given who's been out. I mean, even in the wins, he's made some glaring mistakes. Like when he had Griffin on the floor with five fouls at the end of the Pelicans game. Yes, I mean, up three. He was correct in ordering his team to foul. But if you know that going onto the floor, why foul out one of the few remaining bigs you have? Made no sense. And then, you know, there was the Hornets game, the one where Charlotte played a bunch of guys they never heard of because of all their injuries. No Gordon Hayward, no LaMelo Ball, no Devontae Graham, no P.J. Washington. I swear, they had a C. Martin listed as a starter and as a reserve, and I thought there was some kind of administrative error. No idea that they were twin brothers. Anyway, you know, you'd think that the Nets would just steamroll over those guys, right? With KD, you know, playing and allowed to go up to 30 minutes? Nah. Another typical start where the Nets get down 18-9 to before Nash decides to call a timeout. As if he couldn't tell the Nets were lacking focus until then. You know, I asked Nash about these slow starts against subpar opponents, and here's his response. Hi, Steve. Uh, I'm going to guess that you weren't particularly pleased with the mindset that the team came out with uh, last night, but you know, a lot of times you guys come back. I just wanted to know if you know what your level of concern is because it was not like an outlier event. Mm. Yeah, since the All Star break, we've started slowly. Um, you know, I think we definitely start slow when the other team is missing a bunch of players. You know, it feels like we we let our level drop. Um, you know, and and what we have to realize is that. You know, not only do I think we are a group with a target on our back, but also, you know, the guys that come in and have an opportunity to play, like in the Lakers game or last night, that, that's the great opportunity for those guys. So it's important that we, you know, are able to come out of these games and, and be really professional to start, give it the proper physicality and, and mental energy. And if we do that, I don't, I don't think it's a, an issue. I think, though, uh, you know, you hate to see it because we can do better. So... Uh, it's about us kind of taking a stand and making sure that we are professional to start the game. So I can see this timeout issue is one that several of you want me to talk about. So I guess this is as good a time as any to segue into the listener mailbag segment, where you find listeners send me questions on Twitter. And let's kick it off with Lavanier or at Lee Avenir who simply asked me, why does Nash hate calling timeouts? Well, Lee Avenir, you know, he was asked about this earlier in the season, and his response was that he wanted to see how his guys reacted to different adverse situations. The hope has always been that when we get to the playoffs, he's going to realize that he just can't sit back and let these runs grow to 16-0. I mean, when Ryan Rucco is calling you out on the Yes broadcast, it's not a good look. The other night, Nets went from up 8-5 to down 21-8 in about three minutes before Nash pulled the trigger on a timeout. I think it was like an 11-0 run when Rucco said something like, Nash may want to talk things over. 
I know it's frustrating. I don't track it, but it seems like more often than not, you know, the guys don't get their act together and he ends up having to call a timeout anyway. Again, you know, I agree. It makes him look like the rookie coach he is and one that is coaching from a player's mentality instead of a coach's. But, you know, we still have to wait to see how he approaches playoff games and whether or not he understands that these are all good teams the Nets will be facing and that his team is going to be hard-pressed to rebounds from such devastating runs. So, you know, maybe it's best to at least try to cut them off earlier. You know, he has to learn that he has enough timeouts to last the whole game and that, you know, he loses all but his last two with two minutes left in the game. I mean, hopefully Nash finds that switch. So thanks for the question, Lavanier. Next up, we have another popular topic, the Nets' performance team. First, from FC at the BK Big 3, you want to know if we're at a point where we can start questioning the performance team, you know, with the setbacks we've had this season, along with ongoing significant injuries seemingly every year. And D. Cowan at D. Cowan 850 asked if it's fair criticism to turn against the Nets' performance team because of the lingering KD and hardened hamstring issues and setbacks. Or is it just a byproduct of a condensed schedule? Okay, I mean, I can tell from both of your well-worded questions that you understand that this is a complex issue. I mean, the entire league is seeing a deluge of injuries. I mean, look at every team's inactive list. It's a freaking nightmare. I would say that, you know, every MVP candidate has missed significant time with an injury, at least five games, all of them except for maybe Nikola Jokic and Julius Randle. And yes, I, I know, Randle is a stretch for MVP honors. But yeah, the condensed schedule is really taking its toll on the players. But it's also not like the prior seasons were bastions of player safety. You know, Some of those injuries were absolutely horrific. It's a rough sport. And as for the Nets, I have no real insight into what their performance team actually does. Yeah, you know, the organization hypes it so much, and they talk about all the new technologies they have and all the data they collect in the name of sports science. But, you know, in the end, who's going to prevent a guy from landing on another player's foot? I will concur with you both that the KD and Harden situations weren't good looks. I think it was last week when I joked that the Nets' biggest need in the buyout market was a new scanner. The other thing to wonder about is whether these three net stars have more input into how their bodies are treated than others in previous years. I mean, Sean Marks' teams never had guys play much over 30 minutes a game. James Harden? He was averaging around 40 for a while before he got hurt. And the funny thing is, if you were to bet on who would play the most games among the big three since the Harden trade, how many of you would have picked Kyrie? But, you know, he's in the lead. Thank you both FC at the BK Big 3 and at the Cowan 850 for your questions. Moving on, we have at Rich Like Hell, who sent me a snarky one. He wrote, The year is 2049. 
The Nets are playing the Game 7 of the Finals versus the Seattle Supersonics. At the 534 mark of the first quarter, the first player off the bench is Timothy Luau Cabarro. Are you dreaming or is this real life? Well, at Rich Like Hell, I guess I should answer this the way a former professional athlete once responded when he was asked something like, if he ever dreamt of making it? And he said, I dream about girls. Well, that's not exactly the case with me. I can tell you my TLC nightmares do end when I turn off the TV for the night. And I don't know that TLC will be in the NBA in 2023, let alone 2049. But if your point is that Nash was relying too much on this guy, yeah, I agree. He's not good. However, you know, when you've got about half the team on the inactive list, what choice does a coach have? As a 13th guy on a roster, I'm fine with TLC. Nets really have no one else at his position. And, you know, they seem to be using the Aldridge slot on a point guard in Mike James. Look, you know, the bottom line is if that the Nets aren't whole in the playoffs, and especially if KD isn't 100%, they aren't going to the finals. I hope that's what you're looking for at Rich Like Hell. Up next is Sadak, or at Shiz24, who's one of many Nets fans who's seen enough of DeAndre Jordan. Sadak basically wanted to know why DJ played the entire fourth quarter when the Raptors played smaller, with either Kem Birch or Freddie Gillespie in the middle, both of whom are listed at six foot nine. Sadak would have preferred Griffin, who played only 19 minutes in his first back-to-back as a net. Look, Sadak, on many nights, I'd agree with you. Last night, though, I think DJ was far down on the list of the Nets' problems. Team was plus seven when he was on the court, so it's not like they got killed out there. The guys make a few of the open threes they missed down the stretch, maybe it's a better outcome. Of course, when I was talking about Brooklyn's poor starts to games, especially against inferior opponents... Yeah, a good chunk of the blaming there goes to Jordan. You can see when he's not going all out, and you can also tell when he's up for a matchup like he was against Embiid. And the fact is that the Nets no longer have that kind of body to bang with a guy like that. So we're going to have to live with some of these lackluster efforts. Hopefully, Claxton works on his body in the offseason so he can provide the necessary bulk to take over the reins full-time in the coming seasons. Uh, thanks again, Sadak at Shiz24. Loyal listener Eddie Limage checked in with a question that I think he intended to be about Mike James, not Mike Scott. So, yeah, Eddie, uh, James is playoff eligible because he wasn't on an NBA roster after April 9th. Played overseas. Will he make an impact? Honestly, you know, I feel the same way about James that I do about TLC. In these regular season games where the Nets are so short-handed, sure, give him a shot. I really haven't seen much of him, but I'd imagine he can give you a little bit of what Chris Chioza brought before his hand injury ended his season. Some ball handling duties in a pinch. And I hear James has a nasty floater game. But again, you know, if James has to play in the postseason, Nets are already in trouble.
Thank you, Eddie Limage. And finally, we go to loyal listener Corey Cantor at CBC 727. Corey always does the back to school thing, you know, where Rodney Dangerfield was taking his final exams. You know, one question in 27 parts. Nah, just kidding, Corey. You know, you can always ask me anything. Anyway, Corey's first question is what should the Nets' priority be over the next month before the playoffs start? I think this is an easy one, Corey. Get healthy. It's that simple. I'm less concerned about chemistry, the number one seed, or anything else besides the injury report before game one of the Eastern Conference quarterfinals. I still feel like the Nets' best beats everyone else's best. Honestly, the East is going to be a war this postseason. You know, I wouldn't count out teams like Boston or Miami. Even the Knicks are playing some frisky, tough basketball. But if the Nets are healthy, yeah, I like their chances. And that's probably the answer to your second request as well, you know, which was to give the fans some sort of silver lining after this awful injury month. So, yeah, some of the guys should be back soon. KD's day-to-day, according to Nash, could play Friday versus Boston or Sunday versus Phoenix, both of which are at Barclays Center. You know, I can't see Harden skipping the playoffs, even if he has to take the rest of the regular season off. The way he plays, he can still run an offense on one leg. And as for some of the other guys, Claxton won't be in the COVID-19 protocols forever, and I hear that Tyler Johnson is doing some on-court work. Though, you know, he's probably still a few weeks away from game availability. And don't sleep on Spencer Dinwiddie. Yeah, I know it's a long shot that he returns from his ACL injury. But, you know, like Sean Mark said, he would never bet against Spencer Dinwiddie after all he's been through to get himself to the grandest stage. So I hope that puts a pep in your step, Corey. Oh, and lastly, as for why there are so many injuries in the NBA this season... I did go over that before, but you know, to dig a little deeper into this subject, you know, nothing is going to change until the league and the union decide that this is a problem worth solving and then figure out the economics of making the necessary changes. The only way this happens is to cut the number of games, and no one wants to take the financial hits that come with it. Even this year, they settled on 72 games for a reason. Because that's the number they promised to regional cable TV companies in their contracts. In order to not have the season bleed into 21-22, they had to squeeze all these games in a smaller window. These injuries are a side effect of the players and owners each wanting to maximize revenue this year. And when I went to the MIT Sloan Conference a couple of years ago, one of the speakers was an ESPN writer who suggested cutting back the number of games so that each team plays once on a weekend and once during the middle of the week. It wouldn't necessarily cut back on national TV inventory because you, know, you could still spread out the games over the normal Tuesday through Friday time slots on TNT or ESPN. And in fact, it would make each of those games more of an event because fewer games makes each one of them more important like with football. Of course, I asked the guy the obvious question, who's going to take the financial hit? Fewer games means less box office and ancillary revenues, 
the local packages wouldn't be worth as much. It would be substantial. And of course, the speaker couldn't give me an answer. But I hope I gave you the answers to your questions, Corey Cantor of at CBC 727, and all of you who replied to me on Twitter for this new listener mailbag segment. Thank you all for all your support. As I wrap up this episode of the City Game Podcast, hope you enjoyed it. Again, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to this podcast on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading these episodes. Also, please feel free to post some nice comments on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. So until next time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast.